Cut the crap. How many times a day do you want to say that to politicians, the elite, the loony liberals, the fake news media, and the gender-confused, emotional socialist snowflake crowd? Cut the crap is your secret weapon for fighting for our freedoms and our great republic. It all begins with a massive mental enema, freeing you from the toxic news and politically correct views, which constipate your consciousness with stinking thinking. Your host, Joe Von Hutton Pulitzer. He's known for calling out politicians and telling them to cut the crap. You've seen him on virtually every television network and listened to him on Coast to Coast Radio. And now he's here to help you learn to fight for America. Culture, race, and American politics, they all have one thing in common. They all need to cut the crap. Now, here's your host, Jovan Hollitzer. Hey there, folks. How's it going? Jovan Hutton Pulitzer. And, well, uh, okay, folks. How about this? Happy Halloween. How's it going? Hopefully, y'all are passing out, y'all, as I say in Texas, are passing out candy, having fun with your kids, etc. You know, every time we have a holiday, I try to do my best to bring you the history of said holiday. So tonight's program is a little bit different than my normal program that I bring you every day, 7 a.m., 7 p.m., seven days a week, Central Standard Time. And we're just going to do a little bit of a dive into the history of this holiday we know as Halloween. Now, I don't know what you did in your family growing up, but my family did not celebrate Halloween. Personally, I love Halloween. I adore Halloween. So as soon as I was away from home and became an adult, I made sure that I made every Halloween an incredible time to get together with friends, have a good time, hang out. And there's always a little bit of magic in, uh, should we say, dressing up, doing costumes, having contests, etc. It's just a good time for everybody to get together. It's the same thing. I love Fourth of July, make every great holiday out of 4th of July, which is my absolute favorite. So those are my two for the year. Now, it's interesting. I can remember when I was a kid, I'm telling you, the neighborhoods were crawling with trick-or-treaters. I'm sure we didn't uh, do Halloween, probably as kids, because I, I grew up with the proverbial wicked stepmother, and I'm sure it had more to do with the fact that she hated kids, much less the three of us she got stuck with as a stepmother, but hated kids, and they just weren't going to invest in the candy to do it, right? But I have to tell you, I think Halloween is pretty darn cool. It's just a good time to get together. But have you ever dived into the history of Halloween? Where does it come from? What does everything uh, mean? What's the symbolism behind it? Like coming into the program this evening, if you noticed, on the screen, you notice that the carvings there aren't pumpkins, but they're turnips. And to go back into your history about carving lanterns or jack-o'-lanterns, you're going to learn a little bit about turnips. 
And where did we get pumpkins and all of this? And where did the witches come in all of this? And where did it become trick-or-treating? And when did it become just uh, dressing up? And how far does it go? I mean, why do we don costumes anyway? That's what we're going to cover tonight. It's going to be a very kind of casual program. I do want to let you know if you're watching, if you are around, whether it be yourself or whether it be family members that are business owners, I've told you a little bit about this, getting started to this night, telling you I would be introducing you to it, but I'm going to help you through a program, put some of that money back in your pocket that your company as an employer lost during the pandemic. So you're going to wait, pay attention. I'm going to give you a website you're going to go to, uh, but I'm going to give you a little number to noodle that uh, you probably should think about. You probably should think about. The number I'm going to give you is $26,000. It's that simple. $26,000. And you're going to want to prepare because as I go through the broadcast, I'm going to show you how if you're an employer, you actually have employees that, you know, where you paid payroll tax to everything else, you know, doing your payroll taxes, that you are entitled to get back from our government $26,000 for every one of those employees. It's up to $26,000, but your company may qualify. I'm going to show you how to do it. And you're going to want to pay attention to it because anytime you can get something back out of the system, well, you're definitely going to want to do it. Let's go back in time and let's visit the history. What is exactly the history of Halloween? How far does it go back in time? Most people would think, uh, they think a few things. They think it's primarily uh, All Saints Day, right? It's a Christian holiday of some sort. Or that it's relatively margin, uh, you know, modern. However, I want to let you know that the actual holiday goes back to much further back in time than you really could imagine. And it goes back to a time where most people are never taught uh, about this history. And it's uh, a time in history called Soween. I'm going to tell you about that, whether you say it Celtic or Celtic, doesn't matter. But it goes back to a time in history known as Soween. Now, this was during the time of the ancient Celts, hard to see, that lived about 2,000 years ago, mostly in the area that was Ireland, the United Kingdom, and northern France. They celebrated... This Soween, and you, uh, it, it's kind of interesting because even though you say it Soween, the way you spell it is S A M H A I N, but it's pronounced Soween. And it goes back to what's marking the end of summer festival and the beginning of winter, which is normally associated with being dark and cold. And it was always associated in ancient times with suffering 
and death. See, the ancient Celts believed that on the night before the new year, the boundary between the worlds of the living and the dead became blurred. That light forces and dark forces became blurred. Now, I know you know what I mean because you actually think that was November 3rd, 2020, and you're probably right. But they believed in ancient times, this was when the distance between us and the cosmic veil uh, was very thin. It was literally for honoring your ancestors. And so on the night of October 31st, they celebrated Samhain. And that's when they believed at that time that the ghost of the dead returned to earth. Now, at least they just returned to earth. They didn't vote the dead. That, that's a more modern occurrence, but we're not going to cover that in this program. But in addition to causing trouble, you know, anytime you have spirits roaming around, they're going to cause trouble. They believed that they damaged crops and uh, did trickery. They thought, the cults thought that the president, presence of, president, there's a slip for you, of otherworldly spirits made it uh, easier for the Druid, you've heard that term before, Druid or Celtic priest, to make predictions of the future. They said when these spirits, when this veil is this thin, they have a higher connection to getting a little uh, connected to the spiritual wor world, and they could make predictions about the future. And so you have to understand at a time for people entirely dependent on the natural world that was constantly volatile, right? Constantly volatile. It was the great beast of the time. It could turn on you in a moment's notice, whether it be fire, whether it be water, whether it be beast. These prophecies that would be given during Samhain were what gave the people at the time great comfort. This is kind of what gave them a promise for the future that they would get through a long, harsh, sometimes winter of starvation uh, that would, should we say, test their mettle as human beings. So this was a very, very important holiday. Now, that's part of why it sticks around today, but we'll get to it in a moment. I'm going to give you the whole past history here. Now, in order to commemorate this holiday, the Druids would do this, and they would do great bonfires. This is where everybody came together. Uh, they would burn crops. They did animal sacri uh, sacrifices to the Celtic uh, deities. And during the celebration, these ancient Celts wore costumes. They typically uh, consisted of animal heads and skins. And people, what it was, was people were there to basically tell each other's fortunes, to make predictions of how their winter would go. When the celebration was over, they kind of would go home, relight their home fires that they had extinguished in the earlier evening. 
And the way they would relight their home fires is from that sacred bonfire. And to keep that fire burning, kind of like the term keep the lights on, to keep that home fire burning, which is where that comes from today, they would take that fire, before they'd go to the celebration, they'd put out their hearth fire for the year, and they would all carry home fire, that torch from that sacred fire, to restart their fires at home and keep them, those embers, going and continually burning all throughout the winter. And that was what they considered good luck. And so as you can see, this particular festival, Samhain, was a truly pivotal festival 2,000 years back. We're, we're talking 2,000 years ago is how long it's been around. Now, if you were to jump forward to about 43 AD, the Roman Empire by that time, had conquered most of the ancient Celtic lands. In the course of 400 years, by that time, then the Romans totally ruled the Celtic lands. And what happened at that time, as the societies merged, two of the Roman festivals that were Roman origin, they were combined with the traditional uh, Celtic celebration of Samhain. Uh, the first one that the Romans were used to doing is uh, Ferala. It is just a celebration, again, of the dead. It's typically when Romans uh, commemorated the passing of their day, of their dead. And the second was a day to honor uh, Pomona, which is the Roman goddess of fruit and trees. The symbol of Pomona, by the way, is the apple and it got incorporated into the celebration of Samhain. This is where we get uh, the bobbing for apples. To be able to go in and capture an apple was a sign of good luck. And as, as we go forward, you'll see how this all wraps into All Souls Day, which is the commemoration of the All Faithful and Departed of the Day of the Dead in the Christian uh, era, but we're just not there yet. So now you know we're kind of bobbing for apples came. Now, as we get to All Saints Day, All Saints Day originally uh, was dedicated by Pope Boniface V. This was on May 13, 1609, and at the Pantheon in Rome, in order to honor all Christian martyrs, the Catholic Feast of All Martyrs Day was established, and that was driven by the Western Church, which is Pope Gregory III. He later expanded that festival um, to kind of move all martyr martyrs together, right, into kind of one thing. There were a lot of different disconnected holiday for the Christian martyrs, and so they pushed them all together from that May 13th uh, to the November one. That's how they consolidated them down. Back in Roman times, there's a tremendous consolidation of holidays as the Roman conquerors came through, and they're trying to make society work together, and they're trying to do as much uh, as they could to keep, well, society from tearing itself apart, right? 
You had to figure out how to do these compromises. We've talked about these compromises in the past. You had to figure out, okay, how are we going to blend these societies together? And so that's kind of how the celebration of the saints and everything else came down to us uh, through the de- the days, which you now know as All Souls Days, or or commemoration of the, all the faithful departed, the Day of the Dead. This all coincided with, in the Christian term, All Hallows Eve, like hallowed be thy name, All Hallows Eve. So you basically had a pagan religion, you had a Roman, uh, we would call it at this time Roman Catholic religion. The term Christian was kind of used a little bit loosely at the time, but this came all the way down uh, through all the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Eastern Catholic Church, the Eastern Lutheran Churches, uh, the Syriac Rite, uh, the Chaldean Catholic Church, the Assyrian Church, the Church of the East, etc., etc., etc. These all started kind of getting combined uh, over time, uh, putting these things together. And so you had interesting traditions. It's kind of like we've talked before how we got Easter bunnies uh, on Easter, when it should have been about the resurrection or Passover or Pesach and Jewish uh theology, how did we get Easter bunnies and everything? Well, that was the pushing together of Ishtar to push that particular uh, holiday together. And you're right, uh, we were we are kind of a mixed mutt kind of uh, holiday, right? And so that's where we got to our November word uh, one day. And then about the ninth century, the influence of Christianity really got into swing, okay? Uh, and so this is uh, roughly 800 years after the crucifixion, crucifixion of Christ. Now it's kind of in a pretty big full swing. Christianity has, has swept all of the Celtic lands, and they kind of blended uh, in with uh, Celtic old uh, rites, right? Again, we have this blending, again, of a little more hardly defined Christian activity. So in about... Uh, 1000 AD, a couple hundred more years later, uh, the church made November the 2nd All Souls Day, and that was the universal day to honor the dead. In theology, it is said this was the attempt to replace the Celtic festivals of the dead and to be able to allow them to convince, whatever you want to call it, or astroturf, whatever you want to call it, the Celtic people that they were now were part of the Christian faith, and they were now practicing church-sanctioned holidays. Now, you got to remember that All Soul Days was celebrated similarly in fashion to a Samhain, Big bonfires, parades, dressing up in costumes. Now, the Christian costumes, remember I told you that the Celtic costumes uh, were primarily beast and animals? That's what the uh, Celts or the Celts, however you want to say it, did it. What's interesting is if you were to look at the Christianized version of it in the All Souls Christianity 
part of this. When that was merged, the bonfires were still there, the parades were still there, and the dressing up in costumes were still there. But what came along with the Christian All Souls Day was costumes that were specifically angels and demons. Yes, the church, the popular costumes were saints, angels, and various devils, including the devil. So interestingly enough, where you get some of the grotesque Gargolian, right, uh, mask and images of Halloween was actually a Christian introduction on this All Saints Day, also known as All Hallows or All Hallamas, right, uh, which is Eastern English uh, for uh, uh, All Messi, which was All uh, Saints Day when it still had the ancient Latin context to it. And again, it was the night before the traditional uh, Samhain in the Celtic religion, and it began to be called All Hallows' Eve. And eventually, just like uh, most transliterations is what it's called, just like Yahweh became Jesus, yeah, the transliterations, when people would look at these ancient languages merging, because remember, everybody had to learn how to speak the approved uh, language at the time, that's where you get the transliteration from All Hallows' Eve to Halloween, right? So you had Samhain, All Hallows' Eve, Halloween. And that's where it comes from, right? And so let's talk about when Halloween came to the United States of America, right? Came to the United States of America. And it's interesting. I like looking at pictures, and I can't say from the turn of the century anymore. I got to go back to the, you know, the 20th century to look at pictures in the late 1800s and early 1900s, right, of Halloween costumes. Now, I'm telling you, those costumes that they used to wear back then, and I would recommend you looking them up, are freaky. And I think they're freaky because they're so rudimentary, but they're also very scary. I'm telling you, they're scary. If you've never looked them up, look them up. But if you have to look at how did Halloween take hold in the United States of America, well, you have colonial New England to, ba- to blame for it, right? Because what happened is it was extremely limited. Now, at the time, very stringent Protestant beliefs did not allow any of the costuming. They were doing it, should we say, more pure than it ever was practiced before, and that was in colonial New England. Uh, However, where Halloween really took off and took hold, believe it or not, was in Maryland and all of, at the time, the southern colonies. The southern colonies truly dug their Halloween, right? And most people attribute this to that in more of the southern colonies, you had a real interesting blend of ethnic European groups, American Indians, natives, 
Um, and these kind of meshed with more natives look, native things, native uh, dances, etc. And what we now know as today uh, of Halloween began to emerge. And they were they were called it. It became the uh, holiday of plays, and these were public events to celebrate the harvest. Okay, and so everybody would gather all in this mix mash. Uh, they would do plays, telling stories, reenactments, and then they would all get together, sharing stories of their deceased and honoring their deceased. And then the same thing, they would tell each other's fortunes and they would begin to sing and dance. And so that's where the festivities really started to take hold. Now, by the time we get to colonial times, something that came into fashion, and it might be a really interesting attribution to some of the stuff that was going on in the UK and Paris and the the coming back and forth across the ocean, people like Benjamin Franklin, etc. But it was at that time, only in colonial times, that we started to get the popularization of telling ghost stories. So in colonial American times, ghost stories was the rage. It went from being the kind of celebration and talking to the dead or honoring the dead to scaring the crap out of you, right? <laughs> and that's also where the mischief-making part of Halloween began in earnest, is during colonial times. Nobody uh, has really a good uh, answer for it, but by the time you get to the middle 19th century, this was just common uh, autumn festivals, Lines again became blurred with the autumn festivals. And as the as word got out of people celebrating this certain way, it kind of caught on. It was the new way to throw a party is what I would assume. And it caught on and then it kind of merged together. Now, also in the in the second half of the 19th century, what you had going on was the United States of America was flooded with your ancestors. That's right. They were flooded with immigrants coming to the Americas uh, to start, uh, to be on their own, to be independent. So we have all these immigrants coming in. They're all bringing their own customs, their own flavors, their own styles, and particularly their own mask. And one significant influence that was going on at that time, affected my family, affected many of yours, is the Irish were fleeing the Irish potato famine. And it was the Irish who put the final icing on the cake to turn Halloween into the all-out, deck-out, party-hardy. Come on, these are the guys for St. Paddy's Day, right? It was the Irish that turned it in to the celebration that we know today. Let me take a break real quick. Uh, what I want to give you, I want, I want you to write down this website. And it's going to be very important that you pay attention uh, to what I'm going to share with you 
Because if you are a business owner, a businessman, if you're a business owner, if you're an employer, let me give you a few rules. An employer is basically means you're playing employees tax. So you're, fi- you're filing that quarterly or whatever uh, employment tax, you're paying it to the government for your employees. And so if that is an activity in your business because you have employees, pay attention. I am talking to everybody that's right up to 500 employees or less. Okay. Over 500 employees, not talking. I'm not talking to you. So first I want you to write down this URL. It's covidtaxrelief.org. Covidtaxrelief.org. Now, What you need to understand about this is we were put through some really tough times during COVID. You know it, I know it. But you continue to pay your people and you pulled your own business through the pandemic. Doing that because you you did your best to keep your business going and you pulled up your bootstraps and worked hard at it through the pandemic. Well, for going through that tough time, right now, you could qualify for up to $26,000 per employee. $26,000 per employee. 26, you got two, right? You got 52, you got three, you got 79, do the math. You could qualify up to $26,000 per employee. Now, the government, there are government funds that are available to reward companies. You're going to look at with five or more employees that stayed open during COVID. That's the key. Stay open during COVID. But here's another key. This is not a loan, and you do not have to pay it back. Let me repeat that. This is not a loan, and you do not have to pay it back. Now, this is a complicated program. Uh, Nobody knows more about it than CPAs or tax experts. That's why we've partnered with covidtaxrelief.org. That's where I want you to go, covidtaxrelief.org. You're not going to pay anything up front at all. They're going to do all the work. And when they get you money, they're going to share in a percentage of that cash they get you. It's really simple. They'll go get it, fetch it, deal with all the headaches for you. But businesses of all types, including, ready for this, nonprofits and churches can qualify, including those, even if you took a PPP loan, even if you had an increase in sales. It doesn't mean your business had to get clobbered. But you did the tough thing for your employees during COVID. Let covidtaxrelease.org, right, covidtaxrelief.org, help you get up to $26,000 per employee. Do yourself a favor, visit covidtaxrelease.org. That's covidtaxrelease.org. Please do that, folks. It's very, very important, very simple. You're going to just fill out a little bit of information there. They're going to contact you. They're going to take you through it. Don't forget to put your promo code. It'll ask you. Um, you know, who brought you here so they know how to make sure to service you, especially to my standard for you. This is legit. This is real. I've listened to what they've done for their clients. 
it's very simple. I've heard horror stories from people saying they they heard about this, tried to hire attorneys, and attorneys wanted thousands and thousands of dollars from them up front, and they still had no idea if the attorney would get anything for them. This is simple. You're not going to pay anything. You're just going to give them the information. They're going to do the work. They're going to get a percentage for it. Make sure you go to covidtaxrelease.org. Just another way I, in this program, try to bring you things that make your life better. I would love nothing more than some of y'all out there that have 10 employees and and, and, it, and all of them qualified. You qualified up for $26,000 a piece, and they wrote you a $260,000 check coming from the government. I would love nothing more than that to come for, for you folks. It's not a loan. It's not a grant. It's a check. You get the cash. It's your money. Get your money back from the government, folks. Okay, so let's find out where did the history of trick-or-treating come from, right? Where did the history of trick-or-treating come from? Now, I, real quick, I want to go back to covidtaxrelease.org because I can see all of you are just kind of raving about it. Oh, my God. Yes, I'm telling you. I've seen the numbers for companies that have a hundred plus employees. Again, five employees or more, it meant you paid payroll taxes and stuff on them. Just go fill out the form, folks. COVIDtaxrelease.org. They will take care of the rest. It's that simple. Look, you either are or you aren't. But here's the rule of it. If you sit there knowing that you're even a small employer who has employees and you pay taxes on these employees, payroll tax and everything, and if you sit there and do nothing, I've told you this. If you sit there and do nothing, how much do you get? Zero. Because I've told you it's there. This is stuff they don't want you to know. The government's not out there beating down your door, folks, to hand that money out. They want to hang on to it, but it's yours. So even by just going to the site covidtaxrelief.org, you're already at 50-50, bang. You either are or you aren't. You know if you have employees or not. Of course, you got to evidence it. But it's not a loan. It's not a grant. It's your money. Go get it. Why would you not in an economy like this, folks? I, I, but again, I can lead you to water. I can't make you drink. Uh, let's talk about the history of trick-or-treating, right? And... Trick-or-treating actually came to the Americas from Europeans. See, we, be, we began to do this uh, tradition of dressing up in costumes, right? Uh, way back when, you used to go door-to-door. It wasn't uh, candy like we know today. Back then, you would dress up in costume, and depending upon your costume, it's kind of like tips, right? You know the story of tips. You you tipped in the restaurant after you ate. Where a tip came from, T-I-P-S, to ensure prompt service. There was always a, a reason for it. It wasn't just because they were standing there and being a mouth breather and set, you know, breather and set their plate down. So way back when, the tradition was you worked hard on your costume, people appreciated it, and you went house to house, and you asked them for either food or money. And it was totally appropriate, either food or money. 
right? You didn't have to hang out on a quarter, a corner with a sign that says, I work for beer or anything like that. You just went door to door and you asked for food or money. It was completely legit. This is kind of where we get our trick-or-treating from. See, back then, young women believed that on Halloween, they could divine the name or the appearance of their future husbands by doing tricks with yarn or apple parings or mirrors. It was, that's just what it was. They, you know, kind of like reading uh, the tea leaves or whatever. Uh, So for young women in search of a husband, a caregiver, that was the big deal. Now, in the late 1800s, there was a move in America to kind of mold, now really turn Halloween into something official and not so loosey-goosey. And so they they gently nudged it to be more of a community and a neighborly get-together function versus ghost pranks and witchcraft. So remember what it was. It was Celebration of the Dead. Then all of a sudden, you kind of had this weird circuit come in, and it was to try to scare the hell out of people. And by the mid-1800s, as it got back that they were trying to push it back to just being a community thing and trying to lessen the events or the get-togethers being about ghosts or pranks or witchcraft. And so about the turn of the century, Halloween parties for both children and adults became the common way to celebrate the day. They focused on games foods uh, of the seasons and festive costumes. At the time, parents were encouraged by newspapers and community leaders to take anything frightening or grotesque out of the Halloween uh, celebrations. And because of this effort to tone it down, believe it or not, at that time, Halloween lost most of its superstitious and religious overtones by the beginning of the 20th century. So if you think Halloween was unchristian now, like many people say, you should have been at Halloween in the late 1800s. It was a free, scary, in-your-face free-for-all. I mean, it was like the big party to do. And so the parties in the secular world took off during the 1920s and the 1930s. That's when it, because it moved away from being a religious festival, which it had always been, it was it was considered honorable and religious. But when they decided to take that out, that's when it became hardcore secular. And it became a community-centered holiday with parades and Halloween parties featuring entertainment. And uh, at that time, probably just a throwback, in the 20s or 30s, probably a lot because of the times that people were going through, probably, you know, because uh, people weren't weren't doing that well, uh, vandalism began to take over. And I'm sure that because so many people were out at night, the vandalism was just a cover uh, for being able to get in to rob and steal things. Kind of like modern day Chicago right now, every damn day. But anyway, by 1950s, the town uh, leaders, because they really cracked down on the vandalism, and then Holiday kind of cleaned itself up, and they moved it to a holiday specifically focusing on kids. This is where 
we all got the notion, you're a high schooler. What in the hell are you doing knocking on my door for candy? You know what I'm talking about. So that started in the 1950s. They wanted to move it away uh, from the thugs, right, and the teens and the young adults. And so they made a decided push in the in the 50s to change a centuries-old tradition. You know, this was into young adults, right? Now, of course, their young adults were much younger and more mature than, you know, our 20-somethings today, but I digress. So they said, look, it's okay, look, we're going we're gonna to push this to kids, and it's going to become a kids primarily holiday. It, it's kind of a cheap holiday, inexpensive way uh, for the community to get together, to share a, fam- uh, a celebration. And the way that's where the thing came out. If you'll just give candies to the kids, then if you give candy to the to kids, you know, the small treats, then there won't be any tricks. And that's where that myth got associated with trick or treat. You either give me something or I do something to you. And that's where this new American tradition that we have called Halloween uh, was born. It is. And most people don't know this. It is the second largest economic holiday past Christmas. It is. It accounts for. Is it a a quarter, a quarter of all candy sold annually? is purchased and consumed for this one day of Halloween. So see, there's a lot of uh, interesting misconceptions about what Halloween is. Some people will tell you it's satanic. Some people will tell you this. But they have no idea of the origins. And the origins were to honor the dead, to honor family, to honor tradition, and to basically bestow wishes and prayers upon each other to have a, a, to get through winter and survive and to have a great future. So now let's talk about this thing called the pumpkin. So how in the hell did we get pumpkins into this mix? And that's why I showed you that photo uh, at the beginning of the program in the past, and I'm going to give you the story of the jack-o'-lantern, but those were carved out of turnips, not pumpkins. See, the pumpkin introduction in into this is a relatively late arrival in this celebration of Halloween. Okay, so when when did they arrive, and 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 how did we get it? Whatever. What you need to know first is the pumpkin itself is something uh, from an from an agricultural standpoint that is specifically American. In fact, specifically South American. Most people don't know that the pumpkin is actually a South America uh, gourd. It is of the Gord family. And we have evidence of pumpkin seeds and pumpkin growing 
going back to Mexico to uh, over 8,000 years ago. Just for pumpkins. Gourds go back even further. If you look at gourds uh, and some of the other edible gourds going back, those go back uh, 13,500 years to ancient Peru. These were domesticated crops, right? And they were probably grown before even maize and beans. Now, there are some species of gourds that have been cultivated in Asia and Africa, uh, but there's an interesting battle, and this is one of the battles over history. You know, everybody tries to say that our history only goes to Christopher Columbus, especially here in the Americas, because they want to make it say we were a vacant continent. But in the tracing of food stuff, like pumpkins and gourds, they're able to show that pumpkins had made it to Asia and even Africa, which means we were trading back and forth. But once again, in all of this uh, stuff, where did this thing of jack-o'-lanterns that we have now, specifically this pumpkin-centric holiday, come from? And once again, in this Shaolin, it was the Irish who made this catch on. Yes, the Irish once again. See, remember, and I'm going to tell you the story of how we got jack-o'-lanterns, but jack-o'-lanterns in ancient times were not pumpkins. They were turnips. Now, of course, you know, turnips are a decidedly smaller vegetable, right? They're not as big as pumpkins. And in fact, if you had turnips grow as big as pumpkins, right, they would, in fact, uh, they get kind of netty. They get hard uh, to eat, right? And and I personally, yes, I have personally eat, eaten gourds. By the way, uh, just a note for those of you that follow me, uh, I picked and butchered my first uh, anaconda snake bean this evening. Those of you knowing, it's a kind of like a green bean, kind of crossed with like a zucchini and a cucumber. Here, I'll tell you about it real quick. First off, I let this one grow about three feet long. Uh, not quite three feet. We'll call it two and a half feet long. And they call them anaconda beans. It's one of my heirloom vegetables, very old. And I picked the first one today. I was surprised that I even got some. I thought all the plants had died. Uh, I only let it to get about the size of a Hebrew hot dog. And only because I didn't know how the weather was going to affect it. And I wanted to get it before it possibly uh, went too gourdy, too hard, because it's also part of the gourd family. And they always said it tastes like a green bean, kind of with a zucchini. Here's the true deal. It uh, has a very pleasant cucumber taste crossed with the green bean. So I wouldn't say zucchini. There's a hint of it in there. But it was a cucumber taste crossed with a very nice, the nice part of the strong part of a green bean taste. That was it. But here's something very interesting. Uh, cut it like quarters, you know, just slice, 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 slice round. 
and all it did was saute it in butter and let it kind of saute down. And when you eat it, it had this amazing tangy pop to it. I do not know how to explain it. Just pop to it. Now, the reason, uh, if you haven't followed me for a while, I grow heirloom vegetables. Heirloom vegetables are vegetables that sometimes haven't been grown for hundreds, if not thousands of years. This is one of them. It's called an anaconda bean. And these beans can get three or four feet long and get up to 30 pounds. One bean. Anyway, enough of that digression. How pumpkins took over because see turnips were the precursors for the jack-o'-lanterns at the time but when the irish got here they uh became enamored with pumpkins evidently um pumpkins were not something in scotland and ireland and so they didn't kind of have this orange freaky fruit we got right and but us as americans had pumpkins the Irish and the Scots and the UK, they were digging on turnips, man. And you know turnips can be hit or miss. They can either have a really good favor, but if you let them go too long, I'm telling you they're bitter and they will kick your butt. And so there's this love-hate relationship with turnips. And sometimes, you know, when they go to root, that's all you got. You got to eat them and they are disgusting. They can be pleasant, but they can be disgusting. Well, what happened is when they got to America's, they brought with them the twisted tale of stingy jack now you may or may not have heard this before but according to legend this jack fellow was a devious fellow and he outsmarted the devil for taking his soul to get more time and he kept on doing this over and over again see jack was uh the town drunk he had a clever side he met the devil one night the duo shared a drink And being too cheap to pay for his booze, Jack convinced Satan to morph into a coin so that he could pay for their beverages. As soon as he did, Jack put the coin in his pocket next to a silver cross. And then from that time on, the the devil was unable to change back into his original form. And Jack held him that way until Satan agreed not to take his soul. So that's where it comes sneaky Jack from. So that's the story, right? And so what supposedly this uh, shifty swindler did, right? He convinced the devil to climb up a tree next to steal a piece of fruit. And then he carved the sign of the cross into the tree bark. And again, the devil couldn't come down the tree because there was a cross cut in it. And he couldn't and was not able to bother Jack for another 10 years. Then, shortly after meeting with the devil, Jack died. And as the legend goes, God would not accept Jack into heaven and sent him down to visit the devil in hell. But the devil kept his promise. He would not let Jack into hell either, and he imprisoned him in even a more darker fate. See, the devil sent Jack out into the night to roam the world for eternity and only gave him one single little piece of coal to light his way. And in order to light it and see his way, Jack lit the coal. He put it out in a hollowed out turnip. He hollowed it out, had the little eye socket so it would beam out. And that is what lighted his way. And it was said you could see Jack and his glowing turnip uh, 
roaming the countryside, and that was used to scare children ever since. If you saw roaming out li- eyes out there lighting up, and that's where it became referred to as Jack of the Lantern. And of course, as transliteration goes, it was shortened to Jack o' Lantern. People began to carve their own lanterns out of turnips, beets, uh, and uh, potatoes. But then when the Irish got here and saw pumpkins and they were, you carved your own to, to ward off evil spirits, right? Or as the Irish say, just another excuse for a drinking party, but you would carve your own. And when they got here and found our big plump orange uh, fruit, pumpkin fruit, it took on a whole new uh, history. It took on a history of its own uh, that just kind of took off like uh, wildfire. Um, And in some traditions, by the way, in some traditions, they'll carve watermelons. Uh, People will call uh, carve uh, apples to do it. I've even seen people carve uh, pineapples, believe it or not. And they're actually pretty cool, right? You core out the pineapple and you got your little top and they'll just carve eyes in it and they have pineapples, right? I'm I, I seen pictures of it never seen one in person but it's but it's rather interesting that that people do this but again what it became was something to ward off evil spirits from uh being around you uh during those times so let's talk about do you even know how we um got witches involved in this mess i told you that the christians brought in angels, and demons. But witches are a, a distinctly unique twist uh, to Halloween that's different than a lot of the traditions. So the witches, they came in a really uh, interesting way. And of course, you know, history tells us that witches are evil beings. Um, this has come down to us from Christians in uh, Europe, it's probably the most iconic outside of the pumpkin, which you now know is an American, decidedly American thing, uh, even though the Halloween traditions much older. The witch uh, is a Christianized Europe insertion into this, right? Uh, and, you know, this is where you get anything from the evil, you know, wrinkled face, wart nosed, whatever the case may be. Um, and of course, then in pop culture, they've switched to beautiful women, benevolent, nose twitching housewives. Uh, I loved me some bewitch, right? Samantha was my childhood crush, right? But here's the origin of witches. Um, the definition comes from the women at the time who would practice, uh, witchcraft, basically using magic spells and calling upon spirits to help or to bring about change. Okay, this was common practice. This was common practice. Until what I would call church times, these were women were your healers, women were your doctors, women were your medicine people, women were your cantors, you know, they were your shaman, they were everything. As it got into a matriarchal society, right? Patriarchal society versus a matriarchal society. 
they started to get associated with, oh, this is bad news, and therefore women started to get shamed over it, when at the time they were really just natural healers or wise women. Uh, it's a it's a profession widely misunderstood, and of course, and it's just true, it, it is what it is. It's just like in biblical times, you want to shame a woman, call her a prostitute, it's the way it goes. But there was a brand of witches in a historical sense that were decidedly, again, not necessarily evil, but um, should we say soothsayers, uh, prophetess, um, divining the future? Now, see, this is where it kind of comes in. Remember, Halloween originally in the Celtic tradition, Celtic tradition was always about divining the future. The name witch or the proclamation of witch comes to us from about 931 BC till about 721 BC. It was written about a lot, and you've come to know it in the Bible uh, as the book of of, uh, 1 Samuel. And they particularly talk about uh, King Saul bought the witch of Endor to summon the dead prophet Samuel's spirit to help uh, Saul defeat the Philistine army, okay? And so this was about seeking divine guidance. All traditions, all traditions across the world have always called on the souls or spirits of their ancients for guidance and wisdom that they felt they needed. Um, Now, this witch, I guess, should say upset Samuel that when uh, she prophesied the death of Saul and his sons, and then the next day, according to the Bible, Saul's sons died in battle, and, and, and Saul then committed suicide. Now, in the Old Testament verses, that's where, now you've got to remember when the Old Testament comes in. New Testament's very old, <laughs> right? Uh, our Old Testament's very old. It's the Talmud. It's the Jewish Bible. It's much older. Vast timelines in between it. When you get to the New Testament, which was primarily authored starting at about 70 to 100 years after the crucifixion is when you start getting the New Testament stuff— that's where you get the often cited Exodus uh, 22.18 that says, Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. Uh, there's another biblical passage against divination, uh, chanting, uh, using witches, or, con- or contact with the dead. Now, about 1500s to 1660, there was a serious movement in the church. Now, we're getting into the Dark Ages here. I've explained this from an exploration standpoint, but the church did not want people going out to find their fortunes. And so if you think about the center of the world at the time being the Mediterranean, right? And so, of course, you have Israel over here, and you got ancient Greece, and you've got Egypt down here, you know, and you're coming on across North Africa— And then right there at Spain, you have the Rock of Gibraltar, the Gates of Gibraltar, or what was called at that time the Gates of Hercules, the Pillar of Hercules. They didn't want people venturing out into the ocean known as the Atlantic, which is where eventually the Americas, of of course, were known to exist. That's why 
during that time that we know as the Dark Ages before the Renaissance, and even after, they would put uh, sea monsters on maps. And it was primarily because the church did not want people to go out and find their fortune and become independent. Sad state of affairs, but the church wanted to control everything. That's just the way it is. Remember, church was government, government was church, and most church ruled over leaders, etc. It's just the way it was. And so during that time where witches became far more evil than they ever had been in history was due to a book called the Malleus Malfurcurium. Malleus Malfurcurium. What that basically translates to in Malleus Malfurcurium is what's known as the witch's hammer or the hammer of the witches. This was a book that was written about actually about the mid 1400s. It kind of took Europe by storm. And it caused this hysteria where they started identifying women as witches. And it led to, and now we're talking about the European part. Remember, it came to the Americas that they started identifying women who were witches and they would force them to confess under torture and say they were uh, doing all kinds of wicked behavior. This is where witch hunts were common. Uh, most of the accused were. Uh, dead, you know, burned at the stake uh, or hanging, uh, civil, uh, single women, widows and other women on the margins of society uh, were targeted. They say they were targeted because women were worried about men visiting those women. So the, the ladies of the house would generally point to those single women and try to get rid of them. So between 1500 and 1600, about 80,000 suspected witches were put to death in Europe. 80% of the women were thought, and what it was, were thought to be in cahoots with the devil and filled with lust. By the way, the country which was the worst at it, the highest execution rate of so-called witches was Germany, and the lowest was Ireland. And so this book, The Hammer of Witches, basically went viral for the time and it basically uh was how to spot witches and everything else and that's what spawned uh, the salem witch trials in 1692 and it began when a nine-year-old and an 11-year-old girl began suffering from fits and contortions they testified against their mother that their mother did it and of course the mother uh they executed there were, by the way, there were six. There was 150 people were uh, accused. 18 were put to death in Salem. Women's weren't weren't the only victim. There were six men's also that were convicted and executed. Massachusetts wasn't the first one of the colonies, right? Connecticut did it. This is where, and it kind of went all the way through. It went to Connecticut. It went to uh, Virginia. They were less fanatic about witches in Virginia, but in Lower North Fork County. Uh, they finally got control of this finger pointing and accusation when they actually put a law in the books in 1655 and said, if you uh, accuse a, some, someone of witchcraft and it's proven to be uh, false, that you're the criminal, like it should have been done. Uh, but they had about maybe a dozen or two dozen witchcraft trials between 1626 and about 1730, but at least they didn't uh, 
kill any of the women. This is how it all kind of got tied together. Um, And this became a way, ironically, that women could legitimately dress up as a natural healer, uh, an herbalist, or whatever the case may be, and kind of give a wink, wink, nod, nod to that women were the caretakers of the time. And so it was kind of allowed during Halloween, and it was said most women were giving a nod to that, that they knew that a lot of these women uh, weren't really witches, and it was a a way to be controlled, etc. And so you had this split in society where women thought, one thing and would dress up like it and it'd be okay on this holiday, but men thought others. And over this time, they just kind of became interweaved. And Halloween was kind of the time you could kind of come out of the, the uh, closet and, <laughs> right, and rub it in people's faces. Now, it's interesting, right? It's interesting that when you really dig into the history and I do this because I find people will clearly say Halloween is satanic. And many things about Halloween can, in fact, be satanic, but that's up to you, not up to others. And many people have no idea, no idea that it was an honorable even Christian holiday. And it's because at different times, weaponization of words, exactly what's going on during our time, there were events that basically took something that had stood for a long time and repositioned it and made it something bad. And that's how all this got merged together. And it's very, very hard when that does, because think about it, right? Think about we went from honoring women. Uh, some of you know it. I saw it as Wicca. The, the, you know, they were the healers. They were the, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, babies, mid, midwife. They were the midwifers and all this other stuff. It's the way it was. They were the healers. They knew how to take care of the uh, families and stuff. And it's just interesting how it's been merged and put together. And people so willingly will just kind of lay stuff over it. Now, don't get me wrong. Evil, as we know in our society, is very real. And here we are on the night when it says that these veils are thin. We're living in a society right now that every day this veil is thin because we're in a battle for good, light, dark, and evil. It's, it's, there's, I believe there's angel, angels and demons fighting over us, and we're seeing nasty, perverted, horrible stuff for our children and whatever. But I want you to understand it is people and belief systems that make it evil. Not the holiday. 
not the words, not the rumor mills, not the gossips. It's the people and the belief systems assigned to it. And the reason I tell you that is many times the unintended consequences of ignorance, especially from a historical perspective, causes incredible hurt. Things that were never true to begin with cause vast hurt and destruction. We went through some of that together over this last year and a half with people that are holier than thou basically saying General Flynn was a Satanist because he quoted a term, seven rays of light, which even the people spewing it attributed it to a somebody who claimed they were a prophet in the 80s when it actually goes back historically and it's wildly divine, wildly righteous, incredibly sacred, and very much part of that Byzantine area to divine, to the to uh, divine, very holy, righteous, and observant people. But yet, in modern time, another uh, malus malfacurium. Once again, we we saw it rear its head, even in our own ranks, when people took it upon themselves to say that was satanic, that was this, and and didn't even bother to. Uh, historically search it, to historically verify it, to understand where it came from, and certainly to put a stop to it. This is one of my big things, what I had with Clements, because Clements was, and Lynn were the purveyors of it. And it took off like wildfire. Now, the only reason I bring that up is because this can still happen in modern times. And the most wicked of all, the most damning of all, can be our own minds and our own words. And I'll use that as a closing note, that if you're looking for demons, you'll find them. You'll find an excuse to find them. It's why I admonish negativity in my groups when somebody comes in and goes, we're never going to vote again, it's not going to matter, they've already infiltrated and taken us over. The reason I don't stand for that is because that is one of the worst cancers and infections and pandemics of mankind, of humankind, and that's stinking thinking. And stinking thinking is... Dangerous, just as dangerous as repeating rumors, innuendos, and hurting people. And all of these, you are right. These are demons of our own creation that people speak into being. Folks, you can find evil in anything, and you can find greatness and beauty in anything. And I'm telling you, to understand the history of Halloween, 
and to honor your ancestors and the dead and tradition and getting together as a family and a community is a great thing, not a bad thing. And one of the things we should consider in our lives moving forward is trying to find out how we all find stronger ways to commune, to connect, and to come back together as a group and find a way to discuss and to hang out and to support each other, and to let everybody know we're all in this together, and that we'll make it through it, just like our ancestors long ago purely got together at the end of summer, knowing when the cold weather's coming, not knowing if they're going to survive it, because that's when the majority of them died over simple things we don't die over anymore, to come together and support each other and speak blessings on each other, And to tell each other and reinforce each other, you'll make it. We can do this, and we've got a bright future ahead of us. And I'm telling you right now, we can make it. We can do this. And we have a bright future ahead of us. I love you all. Have a good night. Most people are afraid to stand up and speak out, but not you. You've been learning how to tell the system to cut the crap. What can I do to help save the America I love? And the answer is learn how to fight back and tell the system to cut the crap. Cut the crap's not just a radio program. It's a movement, the right kind of movement, which breaks free the conservative constipation and reminds you that you are the majority. And we're just not going to take it anymore. Make sure you're following Joe Bon Hunt and Pulitzer on all social media. See you next week. And between now and then, take a stand and tell them all to cut the crap. We've got all the right in the world on our side. And there ain't no reason to be afraid. And there ain't no reason to not take the challenge dead on. Because I'm going to tell you who we come from, folks. We don't come from some weak, jellyback, spineless people. That's not who we come from. None of us. And it doesn't matter what color you are, what nation your folks hail from, how much money you got. We all share the same name. We are Americans. And at Bunker Hill, there was Americans. And at Fredericksburg and Gettysburg, there was Americans. And at Iwo Jima, raising that flag on Sarabachi, it was Americans. And at Porkchop Hill, there was Americans. Quezon, there was Americans. And on 9-11, there was Americans who ran towards those burning buildings. That is who you share your heritage with. You do not share your heritage with a weak and ineffective people who cower at the side of trouble. You share your heritage with a strong and brave people who are determined to hold on to their freedom and for the freedom of future generations. Guys, it's time for us to stand up and be that generation. It's time for us to stand strong and proud to remember who we are. That we are Americans. And as long as we stand as the vanguard of freedom in this nation, freedom will survive. Not only survive, but fly. So guys, 
time to put on a pass. It's time to fix those bayonets. It's time to get ready. We got a fight on our hands. And our fight is not for us. For all those generations that's going to come behind us. Let's save America, folks. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal. That they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. That among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. 260 million of you shop here weekly. And did you know you spend about $1,400 each year? Two and a half million of you shop here daily, and you give them $1,000 each year. Combined, that's a half a trillion dollars annually. And you think it's the American way to shop? Think again. Your hard-earned money is being funneled to bad organizations. The consumable products you buy, well, they're washing America down the drain. Think about where you spend your money. Folks, we have to save America from socialism. We need to make the woke go broke. First things first, and that's America first. You need to follow the money. You need to follow your money and make the woke go broke. So I will show you how to save America from socialism. Go to makewokegobroke.click. Yes, dot click. Makewokegobroke.click. Makewokegobroke.click and do it now. You want to know what stinks? When you bought this brand, or maybe you bought this brand, you personally funded Black Lives Matter. Yes, you. Y-O-U. When you bought these products, your hard-earned money helped fund BLM. We think it stinks, too. Woke companies took your money and fund the destruction of America with things like critical race theory, Marxism, and more. But wait, it does get worse. Hundreds of name brands and all the big box stores... Use your money to fund the woke America-hating agenda. It's time for you to put an end to this insanity and fight back. We need to make the woke go broke. If we work together, we can save America from socialism. Just click. One simple click changes everything. MakeWokeGoBroke.click. Yes, MakeWokeGoBroke.click. Let's save America, folks.